Good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are, and welcome to the Politics Guys with your hosts, Dave Carson and Michael Darnowski. Welcome to the Politics Guys. I'm Michael Baranowski, a political scientist at Northern Kentucky University. My co-host this week, as always, is Cleveland Area Attorney and sometime Republican strategist Jay Carson. We start this week with a congressional vote that didn't happen. House Republicans, the same bunch that managed to pass over 50 repeal votes when Barack Obama was in the White House, found out on Friday that actually governing is pretty tough. Speaker Paul Ryan, who had initially scheduled the vote on the 7th anniversary of Obamacare first becoming law, uh, first delayed and then actually pulled the vote when he realized it wouldn't gain a majority. And this despite Republicans having a 44-seat majority in the chamber, despite the long-standing Republican promise to repeal Obamacare as soon as possible, and President Trump's vaunted dealmaker abilities, including a threat to reluctant Republicans that they would lose their seats if they didn't go along. Now, there's a lot to break down here. So, Jay, I was thinking we could first look at what happened and why it happened, then talk about the future of Obamacare, which Speaker Ryan said will be the law of the land for the foreseeable future, and then maybe talk a little bit about what's next in terms of legislative strategy and goals for the Trump administration and congressional Republicans. Sound good? Sounds good. Okay, yep, excellent. Sounds good. Well, first, the uh, what happened and why. Uh, what's your take on what went on here? Well, Trump hasn't said it yet, but I'll say it. Uh, total disaster. <clears throat> um, right. You know, I, I think uh, – you know, what happened was the uh, the Trump administration and apparently House leadership underestimated uh, the Freedom Caucus and uh, their ability to uh, stand up against this thing. Um, I think it was was rather maybe hastily pushed through. Uh, there was the idea of let's have some momentum. Let's get this done. We want this to be the first thing out of the chute. And maybe it shouldn't have been. Um you know, it's because simply because it's it's one of the hardest and most complex. And in retrospect, maybe it would have made more sense to get a couple other easy victories under your belt uh, before you, you you try to to go for the big one. Uh, but I also I also understand the thinking that you know, listen, here's the, the you know the point of a president's maximum power um, is is sort of right after he's elected before he's really used it before you've sort of depleted any of it. Uh, so. Uh, there was there was that idea, uh, and uh, I, I think it it proved to be uh, uh, incorrect. Now, um, you know, I'm, I'm I'm you know if if it were me, I mean, I I think the strategy of getting uh, half a loaf uh, is always better than getting none. Uh, and now I I know a lot of conservatives disagree with me on that, um, but I think one of our first shows I talked about our you know, the three yards in a cloud of dust uh, kind of strategy is uh, you, you get what you can when you can uh, and then, uh, you know, work uh, work on the next play. So I, I think uh, that's what happened. Uh, Trump, um, you know, the other the other piece of it uh, is it showed a little bit about what Trump can do and can't do uh, as far as threatening uh, or or, uh, you know, bringing people on board. <clears throat> Uh, he was he was not able to to uh, exercise that kind of authority to either scare people or, uh, for lack of a better word, uh, bribe them, cajole them into uh, 
seeing uh, seeing thing his, his way. And there was a question, even to some extent, how on board Trump was with uh, with this plan. Right. No, I think there are a couple things uh, that I I would like to add to that, and I agree with you in, in a lot of those particulars. One thing is, even though. Uh, Republicans have a 44-seat majority in the House. That means, of course, you know, 20, 22, 22 votes going the other way are against them, and, and they're they're essentially sunk. And the Freedom Caucus is a little over 30 members, and so if they stand together, that gives them an awful lot of bargaining power, and it got to the point, of course, where President Trump said, hey, this is my final deal, take it or leave it, and they left it. And I think the reason why they could leave it and why his threat to, uh, you know, that they would lose their seat if they voted against this is, you know, they ran a lot better in their districts in many cases than he did. And so that's the whole point of having, you know, separate constituencies that you're responsible to. They don't have to worry about that. And they could do what they thought was right for their district, what their people wanted. And, you know, President Trump was left was left hanging. Uh, another, well, and, and quite quite honestly, the, <clears throat> the risk that those candidates run of losing their seats doesn't come from the left. It comes from the right. Right. Exactly. It's, it's much more of a concern for them that they would get a primary challenger uh, than they would get a, a, a Democrat who would uh, unseat them. Exactly. And so they're a little more worried saying that, that a primary challenger would say, well, you voted for Obamacare alike to keep this same, you know, broken, awful, disastrous system. And now they can say, well, no, I, I didn't bow to, to that sort of thing. And uh, I want a complete and total repeal like we, like we said we do. And, you know, a couple other things I want to point out is, is that I feel like, President Trump got completely played here. Uh, I, you know, it seems like nobody really liked this except, I guess, Paul Ryan and a few other Republicans. The moderate Republicans didn't like it. There's still a few of them in the House. Uh, the Freedom Caucus didn't like it. This was just kind of rammed through. I mean, awfully quickly. It took Obamacare like a year to become law. This we're talking three weeks and pretty clearly from a lot of sources indicating that President Trump really doesn't understand health care policy, wasn't really interested in trying to understand it. And and I think that he was just absolutely manipulated by, you know, Paul Ryan and a small group of House Republicans. And he looks and he hates, I'm sure he hates this. He looks weak and he looks he looks dumb like he got played because, hey, he did. Yeah, I, I don't. Know. I wouldn't say that he actually got played. Uh, I think, but I do. I do agree with you on that. That I don't think he was paying attention to the details on this, uh, and and he just sort of assumed that you know, okay, it's it's going to be terrific, and if there's stuff to get ironed out, he'll he'll iron it out. Uh, I I don't think he appreciated um, some of these really deep philosophical differences here, which weren't just things that could be in, could be solved by horse trading. Uh, which, which is again a misreading on his part of Congress, and also I think a misreading by Ryan. Well, you so. know, one one thing we know is that this isn't Donald Trump's fault because nothing is ever Donald Trump's fault, uh, at least at least in his mind. But already you can you can see. President Trump starting to shift the blame as much as possible to Paul Ryan. Like, for instance, he tweeted earlier today that uh, people should check out the show of, uh, of, of a Fox commentator who called for Paul Ryan to resign. I mean, you know, pretty clearly he's not going to say he's the last person you would expect to say, wow, I screwed that one up. But 
ultimately, fundamentally, it is his fault because the president's the one who more than anyone else can set the legislative agenda. And if he would have come out strong and said, listen, we're not going to do this first. We're going to do something like infrastructure tax policy or something like that. Well, then the House would have had to go go along and they didn't do that. And so ultimately the buck stops with the president and he takes the blame. Huge loss for Donald Trump on this. Huge loss. Yeah. Yes, exactly. You know, and also I should point out that uh, according to some folks who, you know, again, the Trump administration leaking like a sieve, some folks who were supposedly close to the president say that he regretted going with health care first once he got into the deep morass of it. And and that, in fact, some of the top advisors had suggested that he shouldn't have gone with it first. And now, well, he learned his he learned his lesson. So See, that's just what I said a minute ago. You should have been a top Trump advisor, I guess. Yeah, you know. Anyway, uh, so moving on to the future of Obamacare. Now, there are a couple things I want to point out. Number one is President Trump has said it will, in fact, fail. Uh, And there are a couple of important deadlines coming. At least one important deadline is pretty soon we're going to hit the deadline for insurers to decide on whether to participate in in the exchanges for 2018. Uh, Now, there's a CBO report that came out, the same one that suggested that the Republican plan would be eight kinds of awful, said that, you know – Actually, Obamacare isn't in a death spiral, and they predict that the, the program's going to stabilize. That said, there, I think, is pretty bipartisan, bipartisan agreement that there definitely needs to be some changes to Obamacare, but that isn't going to happen. And to me, the big question is, what is, what is Donald Trump going to do? Donald Trump and Tom Price, his HHS secretary, who's a huge Obamacare opponent – they, it seems to me they have two options here. They can actually work to sabotage the program or they can somehow try to co-opt it to make certain changes and say, you know, look at, we took this, we took this sow's, sow's ear of a, of a program and we turned it into, well, you know, as much of a silk purse as we could. Uh, what do you think, Jay? Yeah, I, th- I think that that's the second option is what they're going to, to try to uh, try to work on. And, and that, it's, to be fair, it was really part of the plan. As we talked last week, it was the you know three-stage plan, the first being the, the House uh, repeal and uh, sort of replaced through the uh, reconciliation process, and then uh, regulatory action uh, by Secretary Price to sort of undo a lot of the rules and regs. Now, and, and if you'll remember, there was a whole big uh, – you know, of the of the mass of, that is Obamacare, so much of it is uh, rules and regulations rather than actual legislation. That's something that conservatives, I think, rightly uh, complained about back when it was passed, uh, that there were so many uncertainties and so much was left to um, uh, to the administration. Uh, so there there is stuff that can be done there. And I think a lot of things that can be done that could be cost cutting measures, getting rid of some of the mandates uh, that would lower costs, uh, that would increase competition, those sort of things that can can make it a little more palatable. And as you said, sort of uh, make things run a little better, um, you, you know, keep it out of a, a death spiral and maybe keep more insurers in the mix. Uh, so I, I anticipate that's what they're going to do. Um, but but uh, of and, course, you know, I think it's going to remain to be seen how much an effect that will have, because like any sort of regulatory changes, I mean, it doesn't. Things don't. Things don't. Uh, you, you can't turn the uh, the ship around immediately. It takes right. it takes a while, and then it takes a while for those to 
changes to really take effect in the marketplace. But, but of course, you know, the appointment or the nomination and confirmation of, of Tom Price to lead HHS was predicated on this idea that Obamacare repeal would happen within the first hundred days and then Tom Price would be kind of an ideal person to supervise the, uh, you know, the, the starting of, of whatever the Republican replacement was. And so right. he was, I think, uniquely or at least reasonably well suited uh, for that. But for this role, for trying to make a program that he hates with the fiery passion of a thousand sons, make that work, he's not the guy I don't think anyone would pick for that. And so, you know, I hope that the, they chose the they choose the kind of co-opt and try to make this thing work and then take credit for it. But I can also see the strategy of trying to you know subtly destroy it and then you know lay the groundwork for uh, another you know another replace and repeal maybe a year or two down the road. But who knows with this bunch? Uh, your guess is your guess is as good as mine. So. Well, you can you can really sort of do both. I think. I mean, really? it's not it's not an either or. I mean, I think you can make regulatory changes and and still say this thing has got to go. We're doing the best we can, uh, but you know we need an actual change in legislation and repeal and replace. Um, and and it, I mean, it could be if they play this right, and that's that's a big if. Um, you know, Price could get out there and take the lead, saying, "Here's what we need, Congress. Here's what we ought to have, Congress, um, in order to make a, a, a new make healthcare work." I mean, you don't have to say, want to say make Obamacare work, um, but uh, I think I think you know you could make that case and start building that over the next couple of years, and you know see where you are down the road. Well, I'd, um, it, it's certainly possible that to this point, the Trump administration has shown a singular inability to actually administer things competently, and maybe they'll turn that around. And, and you know, you got to hope, uh, certainly for the sake of the country, that they're going to turn that around at least in some areas. So, but I, but I, I, I do think though, I, I don't think the sabotage. I don't think that was ever the the plan, and I, I don't think it's a good strategy, even if it were the plan. Just I because, hope you're right. you, no matter what happens, no matter who. Uh, put uh, Obamacare initially. Uh, you know, Republicans now control all three uh, three branches of the federal government, or now all through all you know two houses of the yeah. legislature and the presidency. So, um, you know, I, I don't think you can say it's not our fault. Uh, so, I, I I disagree. I don't think there's going to be that sort of we're just going to let it blow up and sabotage. I think there's going to be efforts to try to keep things. Uh, uh, you know, well, ameliorate uh, I, what's going on. I, I hope you're right. I have a little less confidence than you do, but I do hope you're right. So let's talk next about where Republicans go from here. Now, President Obama, or so President Obama, my gosh, I'm wishful thinking here. President Trump has said that they're going to work on tax reform. And my initial thought was, geez, if you thought health care was tough, if you thought it was difficult to get, keep a coalition together on that, Good luck with tax reform because, my gosh, some of the stuff they're talking about with this, you know, with this border adjustment tax and so forth, there are going to be some huge fault lines on this. There's, we've talked about this before. There's a good reason why we haven't seen major tax reform in since 1986. I think that. This is going to be an awfully, awfully heavy lift. Uh, they're going to get, I think, incredibly bogged down in this, especially since they're starting from zero momentum. I think it's a mistake. I think the whole legislative strategy has been a mistake. It, had I been in charge of things, my God, um, I, I would have suggested infrastructure or criminal justice reform or something with some sort of 
remote possibility for bipartisan or at least picking off a few Democrats here, but they decided it's, it's to not go. Even, it's, not even, it's not even bipartisan. It's, yeah. it's winning that, that Freedom Caucus wing, making sure you've got the other votes in your own caucus to yeah. get to get something through. And, and you know, infrastructure. And that's, that, and that's the difficulty, I think, with, with each of those. I think there will be stalwart conservatives who are going to oppose uh, infrastructure spending just because it's spending. Uh, they and there will be uh, in any kind of tax reform, uh, you know, grand policy change. There's going to be things that could be construed as tax increases, and they will vote against those. Yeah. Uh, just because in any, you know, you you can say let's we'll have a massive tax cut, but there's still is going to be other adjustments somewhere. Someone's taxes will probably go up, or at least not go down as 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 much as someone else's yeah. does. So, but, but I think and what those makes, are both tough issues for the uh, the Freedom Caucus to get them on board. But I think what makes both of those issues at least somewhat unique is that you can basically say to hell with the Freedom Caucus, and you can actually possibly pick off enough conservative Democrats in the House, of which there are, you know, a, a reasonable number. To, right. You to don't make, need to get 15 or 20. Yeah, I mean, for, for a while now, the Freedom Caucus has pretty much had outsized power just because of their their ability to stick together and, and the fact that, you know, they, they kind of control that that margin that uh, Republicans need. And I think maybe the smart thing to do is to smack them down a little bit and say, hey, you know, we can do some stuff without you. But they yeah. haven't been put in their place yet by by Paul Ryan and the leadership and President Trump. And I think if they want to get anything done, they need to get smacked down and put in their place. And I, I for one, would love to see it happen. <laughs> um, to do that, I mean, I would say if you're looking to get Democrat votes, the infrastructure and infrastructure program, you're much more likely to uh, pull in a few Democrats with that than you would tax reform. I think yeah. I think tax reform is going to be one of those kind of issues like health care uh, where the Democrats are going to stick together because there's no real reason at this point for them not to. There, there's been some interesting stuff. Um, you know, I'm a fan of Peggy Noonan. You're not. Uh, um, but stuff she's written in the Wall Street Journal the last couple weeks about Trump needs to reach out to Democrats uh, like Reagan did. And, and much as I, I – like Reagan and would like Trump to be like Reagan. I think just the 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 game theory situation is is different because when when Reagan was president, Tip O'Neill was Speaker of the House, uh, and there was some sort of shared responsibility there that Democrats could could suffer because they were seen as as having uh, their their hand on the lever at least at some point. And that's not the case now. I don't see the incentive for Democrats to go along with something unless it's again it's kind of picking people apart here and there. Uh, you know, infrastructure type pro uh, projects that might bring jobs to their districts. Right, right. Yeah, I, you know, and there, there's one school of thought actually that says maybe the best thing to do is to wait until after 2018. Not that you would just not do anything, but if you take a look at the uh, electoral map, uh, there's a reasonably good chance that Democrats are going to lose some seats in the Senate just because of the 33 uh, seats that are up so for grabs. So much territory to defend. Yeah, 20-something are Democrats, and uh, so many of the House seats are just completely safe that it's, it's I mean, it's, of course, the history tells us that the president's party loses votes in the midterms, but uh, given this unique kind of uh, configuration, maybe that, maybe that won't happen. I don't know, but all I know is that it's going to be really tough for the Trump administration to get any big wins wins uh, anytime in the near future, and it'll be interesting to see where it goes from there. You know, kind of to move on, it, in my sort of weird little dream world, 
where I tried to put the most positive spin on uh, a Trump administration and President Trump. This is after I, of course, recovered from my shock and dismay after the election. I thought, wouldn't it be wild if he really actually camp or he actually governed as a new type of president and he you know he pushed an infrastructure thing and then when it came time to nominate someone for the Supreme Court he picked a well qualified moderate i mean sure a little to the right but someone who you know at least you could see some democrats going for it. now that didn't that didn't exactly happen but he did of course pick a very well qualified highly respected conservative justice you know kind of in the mold of a scalia and of course this week mm-hmm. the senate judiciary committee wound up hearings over 20 hours or so of testimony on judge Neil Gorsuch to fill that position that's been open over a year since the death of justice scalia now After all those hearings, it seems to me we're exactly where we thought we would be. Nobody's seriously questioning Gorsuch's qualifications. Republicans Mm -hmm. are completely united in their support, and Democrats are promising a filibuster. And I think there are a couple reasons for that. Number one, they're still angry about Republicans not even giving President Obama's nominee, Merrick Garland, a hearing, and in part, they disagree with Gorsuch's judicial philosophy, which they believe far too often disadvantages the little guy. So what, what, do, what do you make of the hearings? What do you think is going to happen here going forward, Jay? Uh, I, I think you, you're right. The hearings played out sort of as we expected. Uh, I thought Gorsuch did really well uh, in terms of answering the questions. There, was no, there were no real flubs. There were, were no uh, gotcha moments or anything like that. And he came across as a very temperate uh, 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 you know, again, sound con- conservative sort of judge, and said the things that you would expect someone like to, uh, like that to say. In fact, I mean, you would—he said this kind of things you would expect even a liberal nominee to, yeah, to say. They all said the same uh, thing. I mean, in terms of the general sort of, yes, I will, I will rule for the law, and I won't rule for my ideology. Uh, there were a bunch of questions about, or at least a couple questions about, would you rule in a way that would, you know, disadvantage or against President Trump? And he said, well, of course, what was he going to say? No, I'm, I'm going to rule for President Trump every time. You know, kind of a ridiculous question. But, and it, that's the thing. It's become this sort of, this sort of meaningless theater thing, the judges or the nominees, and they're almost always judges, won't say anything that's even remotely controversial. They won't say anything about cases for understandable reasons, I think. And, well, and, and, they, and, they, and they can't. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And so it becomes this, this sort of really obvious thing. And, and to me, I, you know, and again, this goes back to I, I don't like Judge Gorsuch's view on a lot of things. But I also fundamentally believe that if a president nominates a well-qualified person for the position, that the Senate really should confirm that person. And that's that's the main thing. Now, Democrats disagree with that. It's become a completely partisan sort of, you know, sort of thing on both sides. So I understand why Democrats feel they need to filibuster this and, you know, they will. And then the Republicans, of course, will just vote to overturn the filibuster for Supreme Court nominees. Uh, But I think I think I disagree with it. Uh, And I think maybe you can even make a strategic argument saying that maybe you let Gorsuch go through and then if Trump gets to make another nomination, then you kind of use that, pull that out. And then you have a little stronger case saying, you know what, we allowed this to go through. We didn't filibuster it, even though the Republicans didn't even give our president's candidate a hearing. But in this case, we kind of have to put our foot down. It maybe 
gives them on a stronger standing, though in the end, I guess it doesn't probably do a whole heck of a lot. No, I think that's that's if if I were in charge of the Democrats, which I'm not in charge of them, I'm, I'm in charge of nothing. Uh, that's exactly what I would say is um, let's go ahead and you know you have a a uh, token opposition and um, but but the Democrats could certainly um, stand to have uh, enough members uh, vote yes to give them sixty votes without those members really being in any sort of trouble. Um, and it, it puts them on a firmer footing to the next for the next nominee to say, now look, we were okay with Gorsuch, but uh, this uh, the next guy, this this guy's just nuts. Yeah, uh, you know, and, and really gives them some credibility there, and and preserves the you know prevents the the uh, nuclear option from being exercised at least for the time being. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and you know, it doesn't appear that that that's what they're going to do at least at this point. No. And there were, there's one other thing that came up a lot during the hearings. There was a lot of talk about the frozen trucker case. I don't know if you've heard about that one, Jay. Yeah. So where where basically there was a that the short version, right, where a trucking company fired this guy for leaving his truck because it was totally it was in the winter and he was totally frozen and it had broken down and they didn't send anyone out to you know help the poor guy and and. And Judge Gorsuch ruled in a way said that the trucking company was perfectly within their rights to fire this guy based on you know based on the regulations and the law and and that did seem awfully unjust of the trucking company and I agree with that but it also seemed to be within the law and here's here's what oftentimes bugs me about this is just because something is unethical or immoral doesn't mean it's illegal or unconstitutional and sometimes judges are put in the incredibly unfortunate situation of saying yes the law allows this stupid awful immoral unethical thing but there's nothing i can do about that because the law allows it and it's not unconstitutional and so on this in this side you know case i i side with judge gorsuch and against the people who say the rule of the i mean the role of judges should be to do the ethically morally right thing i don't think that's their role at all wow test testify brother that's uh yeah well, um, you know, wow. I, I, I know you agree. Looking, I was that. like a great light just broke from the clouds here and is shining down. Um, no, absolutely. That's, I, I think that's, that's a fantastic way to, to put it is the judge's job is not to fix, uh, what either the legislature or parties in drafting their contract, uh, got wrong. Uh, it's to say what it is. And then if, if those people want to go back to the legislature or they want to rewrite their contracts differently in the future, they can do so. Right. Uh, that's the role of the judiciary. So Now, now that said, there are yeah. obviously very different ways that one can interpret ambiguous statutes or, uh, you know, ambiguous parts of the Constitution. Like, for instance, one of my main issues for a while has been campaign finance reform, which has basically been a stake put into its heart because of a number of Supreme Court decisions, 5-4 decisions, and Citizens United being the, you know, the big one, where, you know, there were four justices on the court who thought that, you know, campaign finance, reasonable campaign finance restrictions were okay under the Constitution and didn't violate the First Amendment. And five justices said, well, no, in fact, they aren't okay. And and this is the kind of example where it's not like I think that it doesn't matter who's on the court. Certainly, I think a Hillary Clinton nominee would have been somebody who would have, you know, come in and been that fifth vote to overturn these things, which I think is so fundamental to reforming our whole 
system of politics, but that's a, that's another uh, – Well, another, and that's also a little different because it's a constitutional yeah, question as sure. opposed to what the, the Statutory, yeah, exactly, um, exactly. And, but, and the, you know, again, I would say that the Supreme Court, while it ought to be bound by precedent, uh, as, as Gorsuch said, and I think there was a uh, – I've read some transcripts of Scalia's uh, – uh, testimony before uh, uh, the Senate uh, said, yes, it's it's uh, the Supreme Court has the power to overrule its own precedent. And, uh, uh, you know, that should that power should be exercised sparingly. But when appropriate, it, it should be. So I think there's there's, you know, more to be said there. That's that's closer to what a, a judge's job would be as opposed to going back and actually rewriting uh, either a contract or a regulation right. uh, to make it to make it. And I, I think something that that Gorsuch had said uh, early on in the process and uh, was, was that if you're a good judge, you're going to make a lot of decisions that, that you don't like. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that's, that's really telling. And, and uh, you know, I think there's so much yeah, misinformation I, about the role of the, of the judiciary. Uh, and, and look, yeah, a good judge should, should make decisions which they sort of feel bad about. Yeah. Like, geez, I wish this was otherwise, but this is what I got to do. You know, I, I, I disagree fundamentally with his judicial philosophy, but I respect his integrity. And uh, so, I, you know, he'll obviously be, I think, the, the ninth justice finally uh, on the Supreme Court. And I think that's as it should be. So there you go. You know, uh, before we move on, if, if you're a regular Politics Guys listener, you know, this is the point in the show where we thank our new financial supporters. And I always say that you help keep the show going because, well, you know, because it's true. And this week, I wanted to let everyone know that thanks to the generosity of our financial supporters, I was able to order a higher quality audio mixing board for the show. And this is something I've really been wanting to do for a while. I mean, I feel like our audio quality is already pretty good, though there are sometimes issues, you know, mainland interviews where we have a guest who isn't calling in from a great connection. Not a lot we can do about that, unfortunately. But the point is, is we're always trying to improve, and I think this should help make what you hear on the show every week sound even better, and it's all thanks to this great group of supporters we have, and I just wanted to mention that, and thank you guys so much for that. So, speaking you of- You will sound even smarter on the, well, new, the new mixing board. Let's hope so. I, maybe there's some kind of a setting for that. I will look I will look hard for that. So, so who are our new supporters this week? Well, we have a few. First, we have- Susanna from New Jersey, who made a very generous donation through PayPal. And Susanna writes, Dear Mike and Jay, I finally donated. I've been listening to you for a while, and I really enjoy your sane discussions. I am one of the many who's been activated by this election and now know the names of all the CNN and MSNBC anchors and have my congressman and senator's phone numbers on speed dial. Jay makes me cringe sometimes. I know the feeling, Susanna. But I enjoy listening to a conservative point of view that's not insane, like the parade of talking spinning heads on the news. I am recommending your podcast to all my friends. Well, thank you. Yeah. Next, we have Tim from Philadelphia, another generous PayPal donor. And Tim writes, hey, guys, during your amazing attempt at describing liberal and conservative views from the different perspectives, Jay used the French Revolution as an example of extreme liberal ideas cut loose and enacted. He said the problem was the system relied on people acting reasonably and people didn't act too reasonably, to put it lightly. I was wondering if you two could discuss whether a system of enacting extreme free market ideas also relies on people acting reasonably and if that's possible at all. Well, that's a really good question. I thought that was a really good question, too. Yes. I thought you could you could start off with that and I'd chime in there. Okay. Well, uh, I would say 
the, yes, the, the market does uh, count on people acting reasonably. Um, but it also takes into account that some people are going to act unreasonably. And that's sort of the, the beauty of it is it's sort of a self-correction is it's it's sort of the, the wisdom of crowds. Uh, if you follow, there's going to be uh, some folks who are trying to price their product too high. Some folks will price it too low. Uh, there will be a group in the middle who who works out and there's who, who works out where that price ought to be. And there will be consumers who maybe spend a little too much, maybe spend a little too uh, or some who get a deal. But in the end, it, it sort of balances out, uh, and and people get what they want for the the price that uh, uh, it, it it ought to go for. Now that's that's again that's oversimplifying it, but I'm trying to do it in the real quick thirty second version. Um, it, it, and I I don't know that there is that that same counterbalance uh, when we talk about things like the French Revolution, where you have sort of extreme democracy, uh, because that that. If there isn't some sort of a constitutional basis or a cultural basis or something, uh, a religious basis, maybe reining that in, uh, I think you get that sort of tyranny of the majority uh, that, that comes out. Uh, whereas in the market, there's always this building competition that uh, it, it's tough to establish uh, market tyranny on your own because there's always going to be somebody else out there who can maybe build a better mousetrap. And it will surprise no one that I will – I, I don't think it's surprising anyone that I will at least partially disagree with Jay on this. I think Jay's, uh, uh, Jay's viewpoint, I think very well represents the, the, the state of the art in terms of economics thinking circa the 1980s. Uh, though I think since then. That was a wonderful decade. Yeah. Well, you know, there was a lot of good stuff going on, but. But since then, the whole field of behavioral economics has arisen that demonstrates that at least in certain instances, in certain areas, people not only do not act rationally, but they act irrationally in systematic ways. And so we don't get that balancing. We don't get that wisdom of the crowd effects that we get in some other areas. And so I think the the job of government and economic policy is to understand in what areas these market mechanisms do work well and people either act rationally or the irrational actors balance each other out, in which case government wants to have a very light hand and stay kind of out of those markets. But also government needs to understand in which markets, in which areas, in which situations these mechanisms aren't working. And those are the areas in which government does need to step in more and to take steps to make adjustments when markets aren't working as we would like them to do. So that's my answer to that. So All right. yeah, I think it's a great question, Tim, and we could certainly do a whole we could certainly do a whole episode. Heck, I teach part of a whole entire class on, on this sort of thing, government failure, market failure, and I think it's a fascinating, a fascinating topic. So thanks very much for that question, Tim. Now, if you're interested in supporting the show financially, you can do what Susanna and Tim did this last week. Go to politicsguys.com and click on either the Patreon or PayPal donation links you'll see there. Every donation helps no matter what the amount is, and it's, of course, especially helpful to have those continuing monthly supporters, something really easy to set up in Patreon. Uh, it makes it easier for us to know what to expect as we move forward with the show, and that, that's really a, a great help to us. And finally, as always, it would be a big help if you could spread the word about the show, share and retweet our new show posts on Facebook and Twitter, and leave reviews and ratings of the show on iTunes. All right, moving on. Well, the steady drip, Drip, 
Drip of the Trump-Russia investigations continued this week when, at a hearing of the House Intelligence Committee, FBI Director James Comey confirmed that the agency is in fact conducting an investigation into potential ties between the Russian government and Donald Trump's presidential campaign. Now, because it's an ongoing investigation, Comey wasn't able to provide details, and he also couldn't say how long the investigation might take. Republicans on the committee clearly tried to focus on leaks about Russian involvement, whereas Democrats are understandably much more interested in evidence of those ties. Now, later in the week, Intelligence Committee Chair and Trump Transition Team member member Devin Nunes broke in or broke that bipartisan tradition of the Intelligence Committee by announcing that government monitoring of other individuals or states may have picked up incidental intelligence about Trump associates. He did this in a solo appearance when previous to that he'd always appeared with Adam Schiff, the ranking minority member on the committee. And Nunes also didn't notify his Democratic counterparts on the committee before talking to the media. This, unsurprisingly, again, led to increased Democratic calls for an independent investigation. So, Jay, what do you make of this, these latest news on the Trump-Russia investigations? Well, I think the the Comey testimony uh, turned out to be sort of a disappointment. I think for everyone involved, uh, no one really got what they what they were hoping for, and it was just sort of a big a stuff we already sort of knew anyway, but but no new details. Um, you know, so I I, I think th- that came out to be sort of a really sort of a wash, and if anything, maybe a little a little disappointing in that. Look, at some point. Um, we're going to need to hear details about about this, about these allegations, uh, some some actual proof to back them up um, on on all fronts. And and you know the it, it came out that no, there was no Justice Department uh, wiretap of Trump Tower. But again, that's something everyone sort of knew already, except the president. Um, yeah. Uh, now the the Nunez stuff, uh, I think that that comes back to a, a you know can can anyone here play this game? Um, it was he may have had a good good thing to say uh, some 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 interesting news to put out there uh but he didn't in such a way that uh the the manner in which he did it became the story rather than uh what he was reporting yeah. uh, if he was if he was reporting that there was incidental uh pickup of trump associates through some other um uh, intelligence gathering, uh, which regular listeners will remember that was kind of my prediction of what what would come out of this mm-hmm. um you know that that would have been not a bombshell, but it would have been uh, some information that that would have made Trump look a little better, uh, less crazy. Yes, there were inform was information picked up, and yes, we'll take a look at it, so forth. Um, you know, at the end of the day, does it does it really change a whole lot? Not really, but I think it was an opportunity missed. Uh, yeah, by, I don't know. By Nunez to, to play this, you know, the way he released it. Yeah, what was the, I don't know what the thought process was there. It just seems really bizarre. I agree with you entirely there. You know, on the second point, in a way, I'm almost glad that both parties are frustrated by with the FBI because it seems to me that very clearly both parties are trying to manipulate the FBI, uh, the FBI director for a partisan purpose, and the FBI director, I think, very rightly is trying to resist that because it's supposed to be an independent investigate you know investigative agency and so it seems to me that if you're if you're upsetting both the democrats and the republicans maybe you're doing something right quite possibly now i have other issues with director comey the, the stuff he did in the election in terms and you know we won't we won't <laughs> revisit that but i think he put a finger on the scale but but in any case you know 
it's so obvious what both parties are doing here, and they're both frustrated because he won't tell them what they want to hear. They're both frustrated because investigations take time, and you know we're just going to have to sort of wait this out. I'm sure, I'm not sure, but I'm fairly reasonably certain that there will be more leaks as this kind of proceeds. But it could be investigations this big. It's not uncommon for them to take not only months, but sometimes years. I mean, this is a big deal, a very involved thing. And this, unfortunately, and a lot of Republicans well, are saying, you know, yes and yes and no. I mean, it's a big deal, but it's 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 also it's going to come down to where there where there's some connections and where are they? Right. Uh, so it's it's not as if there's there are thousands and thousands of witnesses to interview or, or something like that or. Uh, you know, you you really have to dig through a lot of uh, financial information or anything like that. Uh, it's going to be looking at the the to and from, um, you know, parts of emails and, and interviewing the couple people who would have had those conversations. And most likely, as it appears, there are some recordings, taps of, of discussions that, that uh, you know, likely in, include some of these people. So that evidence may already be there. So I don't, I don't think it'll take forever. But, you know, in terms of, of uh, Comey, um, you know, to me, it's it's less that uh, he's being independent and more Congress is, is perhaps concerned that that, you know, Comey's sort of becoming sort of a J. Edgar Hoover sort of character uh, who was independent. But uh, he is able to to move uh, the uh, the political world a little bit by, as you as you put it, putting his finger on the scale, um, but but still not not showing any you know, not really doing anything. For example, I mean, he said about Hillary, look, it looks like she violated the statute, but we're not going to uh, prosecute. And again, with with Trump, it's like, well, we've got an investigation, but we're not going to give you any details. Um, and and again, to some extent, that's that's the appropriate well, yeah. part of a law enforcement agency to do that. But on the other hand, uh, you can't when all the leaks are coming out and you can't you can't have it both ways, I guess, is what I'm what I'm saying. And I, I understand Congress's frustration there. Yeah, I mean, certainly, especially the frustration of Republicans, because as a number of them pointed out, that the longer this kind of hangs around, the harder it is for President Trump to get other stuff done. You know, it's, it's a cloud over the administration, an administration that already has demonstrated a certain lack of well, if you don't want to call it incompetent, certainly a certain lack of experience at getting things done, and this just makes their job even harder, right? Although there, there have been, I mean, there's supposed to be new information coming from um, the NSA next week. Uh, we have had a number of witnesses, uh, who, uh, Paul Manafort uh, among them, right? Um, uh, Chance uh, also among them, uh, who who have said they will voluntarily appear before a congressional committee and answer questions uh, in order to sort of clear the air. So I think that's that's coming. Um, but again, we don't know what we don't know, and we just have to sit tight. Yep, exactly. And of course, that's the that's the last thing the media or politicians want to hear is let's just sit tight and wait for things to kind of develop. That's, you know, anathema, but that's exactly, you're exactly right. That's exactly what we got to do. Okay, moving on. You know, there's more immigration-related news this week, uh, a number of stories, actually. But first, 
The Department of Homeland Security announced a ban on electronic devices larger than a cell phone on flights to the U.S. from airlines serving 10 airports in majority Muslim countries. Now, the United Kingdom followed up with a similar ban of its own. And under this ban, larger electronics are in fact allowed, but only in checked luggage. And the estimate that I saw is that this restriction will affect, will affect, will affect approximately uh, 40 to 50 flights each day into the United States. So what do you think about this, Jay? Is it uh, Islamophobia, uh, more security theater that's not going to make us any safer, or is it a reasonable policy? So it's a ban on Muslim computers. Um, no, I think, I think it's, it's, it's a little funny. I, I don't know. I mean, with the security implications, I think they, they clearly have um, some, some precedent to show that laptops have been used as, as uh, bomb-type devices. Um, the risk of this, I don't know. I mean, I'm not qualified to to tell you how easy it is to uh, to make a bomb out of a laptop or to smuggle something something inappropriate uh, into a uh, an airport with a laptop. Um, I, I certainly can uh, say that it's it's an inconvenience for people who are traveling great distances uh, not to be able to have uh, sure. their their computer. Um, but if it's an inconvenience that you know, potentially can save hundreds or thousands of lives, then then it's yeah. it's probably decent policy. You, you uh, know, that said, I just want to point out the, the sort of funny irony in that uh, if it's if it's unconstitutional for the president to uh, temporarily ban travel by certain persons, uh, is it cons- because because there is a hidden religious animus? Uh, is it is it also impermissible to deny those people who are likely of that religion access to their laptops? <clears throat> and I'm just throwing that out there as not not so much commenting on the laptop thing, but on the the court's reasoning in the last uh, go around I, last. Week. I think I, let me let me address that first, and then I want to talk a little bit about the security theater aspect of it. <clears throat> but on that, I think the argument, the counter argument, would be that well, there were no specific comments by President Trump or at that point candidate Trump and his top top people saying we got to ban these Muslim computers some way, you know, whereas with the people, it was a different thing. So but clearly but, it's, it's the, the people who would be using those computers are most likely Muslim. Uh, what else is one to think? Well, uh, I, <laughs> we'll, we'll see how that develops or if that develops, you know, I, but I wanted to also mention a thing on the, the folks who are saying this is yet another example of what's called security theater, which means things that are, are done that don't really have an effect, but make people feel safer. And that way, if there is an incident, you can say, well, we did everything we could. You know, there are a number of people who pointed out, well, if you still have access to cell phones, then it's not exactly extraordinarily difficult to have your cell phone signal your computer, your electronic device in checked baggage that, you know, can set off some sort of a device, that sort of thing. The same sort of logic that says that you can't take a butter knife on a plane because, my God, you could storm the cockpit with that thing. You know, I mean, that's the sort of thing that I think makes a lot of people just roll their eyes and say, you're making life a lot less convenient for us and you're not making us a lot safer. And I mean, like you, I'm no airline security expert, but there have been a number of airline security experts who said a lot of the things that DHS has done don't make us any safer, but they make things incredibly more inconvenient for travelers. Yeah, no, I think that's that's right. Um, you know, but again, uh, you know, it's one of those hindsight's 2020, and if if uh, you know 20. Some years ago, you had said we really need to uh, uh, ban, you know, little exacto knife box cutters uh, from uh, from giving on to airlines. 
people might have said the same thing. Come on, that's not a real weapon. Um, well, but, a lot but of it people turned out to be. Well, a lot of people today would say that that wasn't the problem. The problem was cockpit doors that were open and unreinforced cockpit doors and that sort of thing. But well, yes, I mean, yeah, but. But yeah, I take your point. It certainly is a different world, and especially from the U.S. standpoint. I mean, there have been other countries that have been dealing with this for a long time. Israel's a great example. But uh, yeah, for us, the world definitely changed a lot after 9-11. But overall, I, I think we both agree that this isn't an unreasonable policy. Uh, you know, the fact that the, the U.K. Followed, followed right up and did their own policy. I think this is a, not entirely an unreasonable response, though. I think it's also fair to question how much safer this actually makes us. So, yeah. you know, I also wanted to mention uh, on the kind of immigration sort of security front, something that White House Press Secretary Sean Spicer said in yet another one of his high wire performances before the media. They're always entertaining. Um, as part of the Trump administration's push to tighten immigration, Spicer highlighted a recent rape case in Maryland where the alleged rapist was in the United States illegally. And, you know, there's not super awesome data on the criminality of illegal residents, but almost everyone who studies the issue has concluded that aside from being in the country illegally, which is against the law, of course, almost <laughs> everyone who, who studied this has found that illegal residents actually commit crimes at a lower rate than legal residents. Uh, and so I think that was another example of just kind of taking stuff out of context and, you know, not exactly lying, but clearly trying to push that agenda. And, you know, another part of this administration push was Homeland Security's release of what it says will be a weekly sort of shaming list of local jurisdictions that haven't been honoring what are called immigrant detainer requests. Now, what this means is DHS wants local authorities to hold illegal residents brought in on non-immigration matters for up to 48 hours past the time they'd otherwise be released so that federal officials can determine whether or not to pick them up and institute deportation procedures. Proceedings. So what do you think about this, Jay? You know, first on the the, the Maryland case, um, I get what you're saying about the statistics. Uh, but the other the other piece of this, the, the way to look at it is uh, this. I mean, there there may be fewer crimes committed by illegal immigrants than the, the crime rate for the average citizen. But there are still crimes being committed and there are still people who otherwise really ought not to be there. And, and in many cases, there are people who have had numerous encounters with the uh, the criminal justice system. Now, I don't believe this defendant is one of those people who had the, a lengthy record, uh, but certainly others have, and, and they, they weren't deported. And, and as a result, they stayed here and committed more violent crimes. So I, I, don't, I don't think Spicer and Trump are, are entirely um, uh, off base to do this. I'm, I'm not crazy, as you know, about the... Uh, you know, sort of taking the, the personal tragedies and, and trying to make a, a bigger political point out of it, um, you know, but uh, I, I, I think to say, listen, here's yeah. here's a crime that that uh, had we had uh, different immigration enforcement procedures, this person would not have been here in the country to commit this crime. Yeah. I think that's a that's a reasonable argument to make. And uh, before you regardless, you know, it's your your. Yeah, but before you move on, let, let me stop. Let me stop you before you get into the next point to actually agree with you on that. I think that your way of putting it makes makes a lot of sense, and and I think that's a that's a reasonable argument to make. So my problem is more with what seems to me to be clearly a push by the Trump administration, and right starting from President Trump, to give people this impression that people in this country uh, illegally are 
more criminal and more dangerous than other folks. And that's, that's I think, the problem is it kind of creates this atmosphere of animus against people who look differently. And I think that's the troubling thing to me. And had the administration taken an approach more along the lines of what you suggested, I'd have a lot fewer problems with that sort of thing. So I think you're, I think you're right on that. Oh, thanks. Yeah. Uh, on the on the shaming uh, local communities, I, I I really think that's uh, that's probably a good thing to do. Um, and and look, we we talk a lot about, and I'm I'm a big proponent of local control. And if you are for the idea of sanctuary cities and so forth, uh, you really ought to have no no issue with this. Um, and, and you know, these local people who live there can can make their own decisions as to how they want their local governments to to act. Um, but I think having the information out there is is good. Yeah, I, I don't. I guess I don't have a problem with publicizing the information. Though I, I certainly understand why these local jurisdictions are doing that, and I think it's obviously in part it's just not believing in that sort of policy or not you know not supporting it. Of course, they believe in it. Uh, they just don't support it. But also, you know, it's I think it's also a resource issue as well. Is a lot of these a lot of these local systems are. Uh, very much suffering from a lack of resources. And while it seems like a little thing to just hold somebody a little longer, especially in some of these jurisdictions, that's not necessarily a little thing when you're already pushed up against the limit of your resources, especially when you're being asked to do it in uh, uh, to try to sort of advance or support a policy you don't agree with in the first place. Sure. 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 I, yeah, I get it. And well, I, you know, well, look, we can, one of these days we can have a big, uh, uh, Sanctuary city throwdown uh, kind of discussion, but uh, you know, I I, um, I think this is probably the the best one of the best ways for for uh, the administration to to push on this is is by getting the information out there and people can ask their own questions of their own local governments of yeah. why uh, why won't you comply with these federal requests and and. Uh, yeah. Um, no, you I, know, kind of let the chips let the chips fall where they may. Yeah, I think we're both we're both obviously fans of getting more information out there and more transparency in almost every in almost every area. And I mean, I looked at the list; I was kind of disappointed to see that you know Cincinnati and Hamilton County weren't listed in there. And and uh, but but I mean, it's good <laughs> to know that stuff. You know, Cuyahoga County and Cleveland weren't listed in there as well. And I was kind of disappointed out by, by that. that. Of but uh, yeah. yeah, but but anyway, so we can we can end today's show on a note of agreement. More information, general more transparency is a good thing. All right. Well, that's it for this week's episode. Thanks, everyone, for listening. If you have any thoughts, comments, criticisms, or questions for Ask the Politics Guys, we'd love to hear from you. Our email is mail at politicsguys.com. Our Facebook page where we post stuff throughout the week is facebook.com slash politicsguys. We're also on Twitter at politicsguys. A note on that, a couple of people in the last few weeks have said, it seems like a lot of the stuff you guys post on Facebook and Twitter is very much Mike-centric as opposed to Jay. And yeah, Jay, whenever, you know, I'm much more the social media butterfly than, than Jay is. Uh, but when Jay posts stuff, I've noticed, Jay, whenever you post stuff, you make sure you make a little note saying that it does come from you. It's usually, I think, obvious to me. But so if you don't yes. see any indication, it's coming from left wing pinko me. It's just to let you guys know out there. Um, well, and, and again, there, yeah, there's no there's no conspiracy there nope. other than, as I said before, uh, I have to work in the private sector. That, um, and, uh, that That's uh, it's, right. It's a, it's a matter of I just uh, uh, I don't always have the 
the time or the resources to be uh, to post on social media as much as I like. Quite honestly, if if I could just do that and and post a lot of goofy arg- arguments and and uh, argue with Mike uh, full time, that would be great. But uh, it would be fun. But they're uh, not. That's not. I, I that's a making that, your house uh, payment for you. No, exactly. So, uh, but I just want to let everyone know that. And of course. Finally, uh, if you'd like to support the show financially, you can do that through the Patreon or PayPal links on the website. So thanks, everyone, for listening. And, of course, the Politics Guys will be back next Sunday. We hope you'll join us.